about, although it's going to seem that way in the beginning, and I don't, didn't intend it to be this, to, to touch on what Pat's going to talk about next week. First Corinthians chapter 15, this chapter's been on my, my heart, I'm just kind of filling in some space this week, mm-hmm. um, so it's sort of a random topic that I'm, I've picked today. Uh, and I guess I would ca- uh, title it uh, The Origin of Man and uh, hmm. The Future of Man. Nice. So, when did you originate, Denise? Where did you come from? I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> What'd you say? I didn't hear that. Yeah, I mean, where'd you come from? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> where do I come from? I was playing. You just landed here? What's that? It's your auntie past, my mother. You're the offspring of your parents? Okay. Uh, um, did God know about you before you were born? All right. Um, so, when were you actually in existence then. There was a time when you didn't exist, right? And then there's a time when you existed. So, what we want to zoom in on is the origin of life for the moment. I'm not going to deal with, I know Pat's going to talk about more of the technicalities about the embryo and the stages and so on, I think next week and when life begins. I'm not particularly going after that, but it it may cross into that section a little bit but I'm not trying to interfere, Pat, with what you... Hopefully we'll have a nurse that will arrive sometime today that can help us. And, oh, look who just showed up. Um, so, how, how do we describe ourselves? What are we made of? Mostly water. What's that again? Mostly water. Okay, mostly water. We're dust. God describes ah. us as dust. Right. Who was that song? Was it Whitney Houston? Only yeah, all the sure. hours, but Same. dust in the wind. That's Kansas. That's Kansas. <laughs> uh, this actually scripture. <laughs> There's a scripture that comes close to that, and it's true that we are even Abraham. Who am I that I should speak unto God? Who am but dust and ashes? Is how he describes himself. But we know that we're made up of more than just the physical skin and bones and, and mm-hmm. organs and, and all the material, we have an immaterial part of us, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, so we could be thought of as being a composite person mm-hmm. that we're made up of more than one substance. One would be the material, the other would be the immaterial. Mm-hmm. One would be considered corruptible, the other would be considered incorruptible. <laughs> What's the difference, Denise, uh, on this, this Denise on this side between a, a, uh, a dichotomous person and a tripod person? Ah, very good. She's got it. So, some people would want to describe themselves from Scripture that we are composed of body, soul, and spirit. Others would just say body and spirit, or body and spirit slash soul. I prefer the second because I think there's more scriptural reasons for believing that. But either way, it's not really significant. I think both would agree that we have two components to our composition. And and you'll see where I'm going with this. Now, there are some theories about the origin of the soul. And I want to zoom in on the soul. 
I think we, we all understand more, and I think what you know Pat's been dealing with the cre the, the physicalness of our creation in the womb is, is a certainty. But I want to talk about the soul of people. Um, and here are some of the theories. One of them is pre-existence. It's a platonic view. And can you name any group that holds to the view, a view, Harrison, help us out, that we existed before we were in the womb of our mother? Church of Scientology, I'm not sure about that one. Is that true? Mormons, yeah. Mormons, that's a big one. I wanted to mention that one. How about um, Buddhists? Well, of course, the reincarnational world of the, <coughs> the Far East, Hindus, Buddhists, and so on, do believe in the migration of the soul so that you had a pre-existence uh, before you were actually came into the world. And depending on how you lived in this life, will depend on how you'll come back in your next cycle of life. Any questions on that? That's, that's what's called reincarnation. To be carnated means to be embodied. Incarnated, embodied. To be reincarnated means that you had a body and a spirit. You died and then you came back again with your spirit into another body, which could be an animal. It could be an insect even, for that matter. And depending on how you lived in one life will determine how you're going to be in the next life. You mentioned Mormons. I just finished a book on, on Mormon, on a, by a Mormon woman whose family just came out of Mormonism, which was very interesting. I get to hear them, a whole family of them were at the Tennessee conference that I was at, and they gave wonderful testimonies of the grace of God that saved them and delivered out of 30 years of Mormonism. Wow. It's, quite, it's quite a story. They're actually going to be traveling. They're traveling around the country now. They're going to be in Seekonk, Massachusetts. How far is that from Warren? Ten minutes? All right. Sandy will give us directions. And Fred will provide transportation. Thank you. So, believe it or not, I, in, in reading this book, I discovered that, yes, that they believe that we pre-existed our, our, our births in our mother's womb that God actually was a man who gra graduated to become a God who with a mother, um, a heavenly mother, together had millions of spirit people who eventually became embodied in the world. That's what the Mormons believe. Pre-existence. Some have tried to say that that's what even the Bible teaches. One of the examples that has been used is in John chapter 9, when uh, they come, Jesus and the disciples come across, across a blind man. Remember the question they asked to Jesus? Yeah. Jonathan? Whose sin caused this yeah. blindness? Yeah. Was this man born blind, or did his parents sin that he was born blind? Yeah, he said, who sinned, yeah. this man or his parents? Yeah. Born blind. In other words, it, it, one could interpret that he sinned in his pre-existent state, and therefore he's punished in this state that he is by being blinded. So there's guilt that he accrued from his pre-existing and then was born with the consequences of it. So does that, does that mean there's some level of atonement? For, for living with you know, blindness or a condition that would be viewed as a punishment? 
you're asking me what they would say about that? Yeah, I'm just seems kind of curious. I'm not sure, but I think that's a wrong interpretation. Obviously, the Bible doesn't teach the pre-existence of the soul at all. You know, in sin did my mother conceive me. So conception is the point of time when a person's beginning uh, occurs. So that's one of the views of the origin of the soul, which is what we're talking about right now. We're in 1 Corinthians 15. We will be at some point. Uh, it's a platonic view. Um, even one of the early church fathers named Origen, he held that view. It was later condemned in church councils as being a, a heretical and false doctrine. And I think that's kind of obvious. The second and the third views are the ones that uh, are debatable. The second view is called Traducianism. Traducianism um, states that the body and the soul are generated at exactly the same time. So when I asked Denise the question, you know, where did she come from? Um, when you think about it, did God just sort of like create your soul and then infuse it into your body that was by the contributions of your mother and father's genes and so on. Traducianism says that the body and soul are generated or derived from the parents by the process of procreation. So in other words, the soul and body are the outcome of the sperm and the egg's fertilization. And at that point, the soul is created. That's the traducian's view. The creationist view is that God creates a soul, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, and implants that soul at conception or gestation. And Pat will maybe get more into that next week, maybe not from this particular standpoint, but it, it's kind of interesting when you think about it, and maybe we have no answers to this. In, in, uh, through, the, through the history of the church, theologians have fluctuated between being traducian or creationists. Um, and to me, it, it, it's really a moot point, really, uh, when, whether my soul was created independently of my body, that God created it, and my body was my parents' contribution, or that at the instant that, my, my, that I was formed in the womb, birth, not birth, conceived at that moment, my soul was equally created too. My soul? I just remember the term, uh, well, the term that I remember is, uh, you are a soul, you have a body. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, when the, when the, when the Titanic sank, they, they talked about the loss of souls. Yeah, even in Second Peter chapter two, it talks about there were eight souls who were saved yeah. through the waters. So sometimes the Old Testament, New Testament may use the term soul to describe the whole person. At other times, it's just referring to the a life of a person. We, we are a living being. We are a soul. That is, that we have uh, vivacity. Uh, we're vibrant. We're viable people. That soul. Psyche, if you will. So how these two connect, we have a, we have a general understanding of it. But the origins of it, we, we, we can be somewhat ambiguous. And uh, I uh, will read just something just so you have an idea of uh, 
uh, under the heading of Traducianism. This is one of uh, four theories. I gave you three. The other one has to do with reincarnation. I didn't even bother referring to that one exactly. But uh, direct, direct biblical evidence is non-existent, and conclusions must be based on deductions. In favor of Traducianism, let me remind you what that is, that the body and soul are generated simultaneously in the womb, okay? Concerning that, God's breathing into man the breath of life is not said to be repeated after Adam. Adam begat a son in his own likeness, and there's verses for this. Uh, God's resting suggests no fresh acts of creation ex nihilo. So in other words, God isn't doing every time a person is conceived what he did with Adam in the garden. You know what I'm saying? He created Adam out of nothing and breathed into him the breath of life in a soul, you could say, was imparted to him outside of the physical. Um, Traducianism was held by Tertullian and many Westerners uh, since the Reformation, by Lutherans, also by the Eastern Church, Roman Catholics, and most Reformed theologians are, though, creationists, though shed and strong favor traducianism. Uh, you don't know those names, probably some of you at least don't. Um, but you get an idea that there is a, there's some debate over the origin of the soul, whether it's from a traducianist standpoint or a creationist standpoint. To me, it, it, it's really insignificant, I think. It, we can be curious about it, but for sure we know that we didn't exist before we were conceived in our mother's womb as to when the soul actually became us. You know, it seems to me that it's simultaneous with, with the creation in the womb, whether God created that separately and implanted it or whether it was just the whole work of God in the act of the creation in the womb. It's, it's funny because like, we don't question whether a person has a soul when they get old and get dementia and don't remember it. And it's like, we don't remember when, you know, when we were conceived and when we were very young and in our mother's womb. We don't remember any of that. You know what I mean? But there's no question of whether someone's an old person and they lose their faculties and it's like, well, is this person still a soul now? You know what I mean? Yes, it, I got it's you. It's sort of like that same kind of, like, standard. Like, what value do you put yeah, on a exactly. person? Like, oh, this is a newborn baby. It hasn't had a soul yet. It's not even formed yet. Well, what, what about at the reverse of its life when it gets to be an elderly person? has no idea what's going on. It's still a soul then, yeah. you know, or does it expire? It starts at age 6 and ends at age 86. You know what I mean? Like... That's one of the justifications for euthanasia, that at a, after a certain point yeah, in age and de- declining of health justifies a person being mercifully put, put out of existence because they don't have the quality of life that would meet the standard that we would all want to have or something mm-hmm. of that sort. Anyway, um, that's all I have to say really about the or- origin of the soul. My main topic, though, this morning is to talk about the body and particularly the resurrection of the body and our future bodies. So um, sometimes a question, a lot of questions can be raised. Uh, for instance, uh, maybe you've heard some of these. Like at the second coming of Christ, the Bible says that we who are alive at Christ's second coming, along with those that have died at Christ's second 
coming will together be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, is any of you ladies pregnant right now? No. You're all over the hill. So... Kelly, will you pick your jar up, please? <laughs> if you if you are God loves you right now. I'm not too sure about us If you were an expecting mother at the second coming of Christ, what happens to that baby in the womb? Uh, I mean, these are these are kind of crazy questions that, great questions. that you can uh, you could raise. Um, um, and we don't have all the answers to all of this, and the scriptures certainly don't address them. So, at best, we could use our imaginations, but not carry it to some kind of a dogmatic position and things of that sort. But there is concern sometimes about our our future uh, and what we're going to be like after we rise from the dead. Um, are we going to look like we looked like when we were 22, 42, 82, 102? Will we have gray hair? Will our hair be um, uh, colored like Sandy's changes with the seeds that I'm not sure who she is? <laughs> hey, hey, hey. You're starting to grow ears and tail. Um, but have you wondered what you will be like after you're risen from the dead? After you're given your resurrection body? So go... Huh? Where's your wife? Where's Michelle? You she need her. Right? <laughs> she was offended. Give me that shovel, by the way. Give me the shovel. I'll try to be nice to Kelly the rest of the way. But those that are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So, assuming that, let's say he came today, some of you are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, etc., Will you be just like that at the second coming of Christ? Let's look at a verse to just jump start us a little bit. Go to the 50th, 50th verse of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now this is referring to, I believe, physical residence. Mm. Our actual residence in the final kingdom of God. Mm. Because when we're born again, we enter the kingdom of God in a spiritual dimension. But the physical kingdom of God, like when Jesus said, when you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there will be a literal physical kingdom, which I personally believe will be the new heavens and the new earth, will be that eternal kingdom uh, that the Lord has reference to. But this is what I think the Lord is referring to here. When flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, so, in other words, that something has to give at the second coming of Christ as far as the way we are to the way we have to be in order to inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep. That's one of the descriptions. The scripture gives Brother uh, Gary Scott, a pastor friend of mine. Mother just died this week and he sent out a notice to say, that his mother fell asleep in Jesus uh, at such and such a time. At, at the wonderful way of describing what happens at the point of death, not that soul sleep is being uh, suggested when we use the term asleep in Jesus, 
Because the sleeping has to do with the body, not with the soul. The soul is never inactivated. It's not disactivated, I guess would be the word. It, it continues consciously on after death. Rich man and Lazarus are a perfect example. They both died and instantly they're conscious of their surroundings and of things and so on. There's no sleeping of, the, of consciousness or deadening of consciousness at the point of death. Like Seventh-day Adventists would advocate that. Jehovah Witnesses would advocate that. Um, the group you grew up in, would they advocate that? Um, a lot of the annihilationists today who hold to what is called conditional immortality believe that when you die, you go into a state of unconsciousness until the resurrection of the body because they don't believe that the soul can survive outside of the body with the Lord or in a place of... of uh, of the departed spirits of hell, for instance. Um, they don't, don't permit that. So this sleeping has to do with the, with the physical body in the state of a, a sleep-type state. That's how they describe Lazarus, remember, in John chapter 11, when, when Jesus said that um, he's asleep. He was describing Lazarus had died, and Jesus himself uses that adjective to describe the condition that Lazarus was in. And the disciples took it in the natural way, which they so often did, like Nicodemus. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born? Well, they took Jesus' words when he said he's, he's sleeping, meaning he died. They thought that he meant he's literally taking a nap. And he said, oh, it's, they said, oh, it's good that he sleeps. They didn't get it at all. So, but the Bible does describe our bodies as at the point of death as being in a state of sleepingness. Verse 52. This is what will occur at the second coming of Christ. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound. And that trumpet, by the way, is referred to in Matthew 24. It's referred to in 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter uh, 4. Uh, behold, it says that the Lord will... Uh, uh, descend from heaven with a shout, mm -hmm. with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump mm -hmm. of God. The trump was a big deal in the Old Testament. That's how they got their marching orders. Mm -hmm. When you had, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israelites who had to be given orders, they didn't have a PA system like we do, or they didn't have <clears throat> the benefits of electronic communications like we do, so they would sound out the battle cry, if there was a need to rise up for battle or to gather the assembly together for, for meeting or to sound out sounds for the, the picking up of the camp and moving on. That's why in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, If the trumpet give it an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the battle? So there was definite ways in which the trumpets were blown that it would communicate to the audiences what the marching orders were for them to do. So the trump is going to sound. Everyone will hear this trump. This, though, is in reference particularly to believers because Paul is writing to uh, the elect. He's writing to God's people and he's describing to them what will be ahead for them. And I have to preface this, too, with keeping in mind that Paul is writing to Corinth, which is in what country? Greece, right? In the Greeks, of course, uh, was the primary country that held to mythology, uh, uh, mythological gods. 
mm -hmm. uh, Plato, Aristotle, um, these, these uh, um, amazing um, philosophers of the past. Platonism, I think, was, a, was kind of undergirded everything. I believe Aristotle came after uh, Plato did. Um, anyway, Plato taught that the soul exists apart from the body, which is okay. It has some parallels with, with the Christian view of man and the Hebrew view of man as well. But there are some, some areas you have to be careful about, too, when you talk about the Platonic view. Remember when Paul was on, uh, in Athens and he saw the city was given to idolatry, it says his spirit was stirred within him. Mm -hmm. And then he preached to them the gospel. And it says that they were concerned because he preached to them two things. Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection of what? The body. Mm -hmm. That's one thing they did not believe in was the resurrection of the body. The Greeks believed that when you died, your body was like a good news disposable razor. You used it all up and now you throw it away. The jacket is worn out. You don't bring it back again. It's gone forever. That's, that's antithetical to both Hebrew and Greek teaching of the Bible. So, this was something that was an important point for a Greek Corinthian who had this history of the great teachers of philosophy and, and had all these ideas about mankind and our makeup and our, our composition and our future and so on. They're being instructed now by Paul as to what does, what are we made of, what will it be like when we die? And will there be an afterlife? And I think Paul addresses some of these questions. 52 again. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. In 1 John 3, 2, it says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and every man that hath his hope in him, and so on. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. We don't know what it's going to be like to be changed. Changed. Just think of that. Already he said in, he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. So we are already entered into the new creation, but still the visible signs of us being in the new creation won't be manifested until the second coming of Christ when the mortal, the corruptible, the perishable, is altered. Let's read on. For this perishable, verse 53, must put on imperishability, and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the ultimate final victory. Death still hangs over us as a dark cloud, as an enemy, in a sense, to our existing. But we know that the Lord has a plan and a schedule in which He's going to put all of the last of the enemies down which will be death. And when death is destroyed, he will reign endlessly without interference. So, how do we understand then the corruptible putting on incorruption, the perishable putting on imperishability? We talked about um, those who are alive and are changing. 
in what age we're going to be like? What are we going to look like? Are we going to be recognizable if we have little babies in the womb and so on? You know, these are questions sometimes we have no answers for. Um, we can only expect the best. I'm sure God is going to, uh, uh, for God's people, it will be nothing but glory and all tears will be wiped away. Go ahead, brother. Uh, I know that in the Bible somewhere it says that we will know as we are known. Then shall we know even as also we are known. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, we all see through a glass dimly, but then face to face. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is in part shall pass, and so on. So there will be a, a, a um, uh, enhancement of uh, what we know to what we will know. From what we know now to what we will know then will certainly be greatly augmented at that time. So I want to go back, though, now to verse number, uh, uh, go back to 30. Well, 29 is, a, is a, one of these strange verses. And since I've read a book on Mormonism recently, I'll just throw this out for you. Verse 29, what, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? Baptized for the dead. And Barry, tell us, what, 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 how do the Mormons take this verse? What, what, how do they apply it? Right. They believe that the, through the genealogical records that they gather, that they as Mormons living can, on the behalf of those that have died without the Mormon gospel, they can do a proxy baptism on their behalf. They call it redeeming the dead. They actually have committees of people who work on this in the temple in Utah, and there are certain people who get candidated to to be the ones who will go and be baptized for the Hitlers and the whoever's of the past so that they can accept the Mormon gospel for uh, future glory for themselves. So, how bizarre. But you might say, well, what does this verse mean? What else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not? Well, I think that it tells us what the meaning of baptism is. It's a baptism unto death, meaning that we, we are saying that the old man has dead with Christ and we're risen with him in newness of life. If we didn't believe in the resurrection, baptism would be futile. It would be meaningless. It would carry no value symbolically. Uh, and that's why Paul goes on to say that how he wrestled, they say, or he fought with beasts in Ephesus. Realizing this was a hazard. He could possibly die. And why would he even be willing to launch out for the Lord in dangerous territories, even having to fight animals off to survive, if he died and that ended his existence? You see, this is another view of the afterlife. It's called the materialistic view. That is that when you die, that's it. You're like a dog. You're like an ant that stepped on. You just don't, you don't have anything beyond the grave. Your life ends here, the picnic is over, and there's no future anything for anybody or you. It's very, um, it's very pessimistic um, 
and somber. I, 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 you know, of course, atheists would would have to hold that view since they don't believe in really the supernatural. You could say, uh, or at least the, the divine. So they they certainly don't believe in in the afterlife at all. Any survival for them it, it's, it's kind of pitiful, I think, and um, very uh, unmotivating uh, for someone who doesn't have any hope of the life to come. The Bible says we're saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth, what doth he yet hope for? Well, Paul was saying, look, at, if there's nothing after death, um, then I'm crazy battling animals who could kill me. And maybe he has some examples where he barely you know, made it through the wilderness or wherever he had to camp out. But he was doing this for the, for the gospel's sake. He says, if I died and there's nothing after this life, I'm a fool. That's why he says earlier in the chapter, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. You know, I, that's, a, that's a fantastic verse, by the way. Uh, one I love to use at funerals. If in this life only, and, and are you living just for this life only? If, and if it, in this life only you have hope, you're of all men most miserable. Paul's saying, if that's the case, if there's nothing after this life, hey, let's let's go hoop it up. Let's go eat, drink, and be merry. Let's grab for all the gusto we can because we only go around once in life, Randy. You used to sing that song, if I'm not mistaken, in your pants. A lot of people have that. That's their attitude. Um, hedonism is gigantic. Pleasure-seeking. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins, Right? that's the motto that's out there and uh, because they have no hope of the afterlife it's veiled from them they don't see the unseeable I don't disagree at all with what you're saying but I also know that eternity has been placed in the heart of man they know that they know there's something that everybody does you can't deny it but like Romans 1 says that they suppress the yeah, truth yeah. yeah you're right about that I agree that if, if they allow themselves to just be observant about their, all the things that are so obvious, you know, creation, uh, the human body, uh, the, the, the celestial mass out there, solar systems, and on and on and on. It's just like all is saying, there's a God. And the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You've got to be a fool to not believe there's a God. Okay, so getting back to our text here. And please uh, jump in at any time you would like to, of course. Um, verse number blah, 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 uh, 32. If, if from human motives I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be, see, be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And that could be that he is referring to the communion that maybe Christians were having with non-Christians. Remember he talks about the devil's uh, table and the Lord's table. And, and there could have been some integrating of the believers with the unbelievers here in Corinth. So some of the immoralities in the atmosphere, they could have been picking up and also learning some of possibly or carrying some of the, the philosophies that they had in the past with them could have been affecting them even to, to, to the day. Uh, in verse number 34, become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
I, you know, he's referring to the Christians there. Some have no knowledge of God. I think the no knowledge is sort of like a, um, a euphemism, meaning like some of you don't even know God. Not that they don't know him as their Savior and Lord, but they don't know God like Packer's book, Knowing God. I think we're all expected to learn uh, more of him, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't know God. Well, the only, the only definition of eternal life in Scripture is given in John. That's right. Eternal life, that they know you. Yeah. The only Jesus, tr- that's the only definition we have of eternal life in all of Scripture. Good point. Thank you. So, whether he's referring to them as, you know, unbelievers or infants in their understanding of God, in either case, they were ignorant. And Paul says over and over again in Corinthians, you are... Uh, uh, he uses the word ignorant. You're ignorant of these things. Mm. So he wants to inform them because they were confused. And it's, it's expected in some ways that young believers will be confused because of what they've learned from the past and depending on what kind of history they have and associations will determine the kind of confusion they have. So verse uh, <clears throat> 35, But someone will say, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? That's the big question here. How is that going to happen? They see the body go in the ground and, and burial was a common way of uh, disposing of the body. The burning of bodies was uh, not common. It would happen on occasions in certain situations which could raise the question, well, what about body burial versus cremation? Is it wrong for Christian to cremate their bodies? Or have their bodies cremated, and there are all kinds of different, you know, diff- different people take different views on that. Um, I personally am a body burial type of person for reasons that I, I, I think the our body is created by God, and, and uh, I know it's going to corrupt either way. And whether it's, it's cremated or whether it's buried, <clears throat> you know, as a as a full body in the ground, we know at the second coming of Christ the change is going to occur. Uh, even uh, cases where bodies have uh, been buried in the sea, and you know what will happen there. There was a case a number of years ago in the Everglades, I believe, a, 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 a plane had crashed in the Everglades, and the bodies of the people, the passengers, were eaten by the, <coughs> the fish of the waters there. So they were consumed by them. Um, so yes, they're, they're, they're not going to escape the second coming resurrection of, 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 the, of their bodies. They, they will be, even the unconverted. Jesus said in John 5:28, the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Mm-hmm. All will hear his voice. Now he uses the word graves not to suggest that only grave uh, bodies are going to hear his voice. He's using the word grave in a generic way that all that have died will hear his voice. Graves were certainly the common place where bodies would have been placed. But we have in Revelation 20 where it says that uh, uh, death in hell delivered up the dead which were in them and the sea delivered up the dead which were in them. So there's, a, there's an example in the scripture. And being buried at sea was very uh, common and many of course uh, ships didn't make it across to wherever they were going they perished like Paul in chapter 27 they barely made it so it was always a risk to get on a ship and go 
crossing the seas because they just had sailboats and uh, they didn't have what we have today, meteorologists who can tell us what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, and how high the winds are going to be. They didn't have that. The methods that they had for navigating were uh, inferior, so death was always imminent for them. Mm -hmm. For us, we're all, we've got ways of, to escape. You know, we get good doctor's care. We have, we have, you know, what's it, the FDA? Is that the one that uh, approves of food? That be mm -hmm. sure that it, it's quality. When you go to the supermarket, you know, I don't quite understand it. Every little tomato has a sticker on it. It bugs me because every time I... Yes. That's why I want to go to Todd's farm more often and grab those tomatoes. He doesn't sticker them at least. But they're tough to pull off. I don't like that. And the pears and the apples, they all have stickers on them. But I think what that basically is telling us that this, this piece of whatever you're buying is healthy. Uh, it's been approved. So anyway... Getting back, we get about 10 minutes here. Um, 36. You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So, Paul is using the illustration of a farmer who throws his seed into the ground, and what goes in the ground is not what comes out of the ground. That's a beautiful illustration of what Paul's going to lead up to talking about the human body. Verse 39 All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earthly is another. Now he's going to talk about the glory of the earthly body. Verse 41, There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for the stars differs from star in glory. Amazing how God has, has so decorated the, the skies with all of these amazing creations. And they're all to the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. There it is right there, the glory of God. Verse 42. Now he gets to the point. So also, in the same way, is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in weakness. Oh, excuse me. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So we're going to be given a spiritual body. We will have a body. It will be a body that's animated by the Spirit in such a way that it will be classified as an imperishable mm -hmm. body. So that it's not going to age. It's not going to get sick. It will have no signs of aging whatsoever to it because it's been spirit animated by the Lord. And then right after that, verse 45, he says, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam received life from God, right? God breathed into him the breath of life and Adam became a living being, a living soul. Okay? That's what Jesus is to us. He is a quickening spirit. He's a life-giving spirit. Adam, the first Adam, had to receive life. The last Adam, the second Adam, versus the earthly Adam, 
versus the heavenly Adam, is the giver of life. So there's a part of us that is deadening. But at Christ's second coming, when the trumpet sounds and this change occurs, this body will now become a, and I want you to get this phrase, a spirit-animated body. Spirit-animated body. Which will be animated by the breath, if, if, if I can use that word, of the Lord, by the life-giving power of the Lord. He'll be the life source for those who are raised in the resurrection of the dead, of, who are of the righteous. Verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, that's Adam, earthy. That's why it's, it's, it's indisputable. We have to hold to the belief that Adam was the first creation of God in the, in the family of humanity. If you lose out on that truth, you have basically just cut the legs of the Bible underneath it. There's, everything falls apart. There has to be a first man that God created because Jesus is contrasted with him as being the second man from heaven. And the scripture says Adam was the first man. So why should we dispute it? So I, I'm not big on, I, I don't know a lot about evolution or the science of, of evolution. And I can't, can't get into all of those details. But there's nothing there that's going to contradict what the scripture says. If the first man is of the earth, he's earthy. God created Adam in the Garden of Eden. And that cannot be disputed. We all inherit Adam's nature, of course, and Adam's sin. That's where the soul comes in. We, our bodies just haven't been defected by sin, but our soul inwardly has also been contaminated by the transmission of Adam's sin to our sin. So what Adam did in the garden, the Bible says, is what you and I did in the garden. In Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. So there again is that one man, one man, Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ. What a contrast. What Adam, how he brought ruin into the world. Christ reverses the whole thing. Adam, as a result of his sin, people started to age and then die because of Christ. It will be just reversed. We'll be given a new life and we'll never die. Hallelujah to that. We will never die. We will live endlessly in a body. Now, here it does not have any particular reference to the unconverted. Um, someone could deduce, I suppose, if they just isolated this chapter from the rest of the Bible, that there is no resurrection for the unconverted. But we know elsewhere, like Jesus says, the hour is coming in which all that are grateful hear His voice. Mm -hmm. They that have done good and they that have done evil they all will be raised. So, even the unconverted will be given bodies which will be imperishable too in the sense that they will not ever be corroded or corrupted. Um, You've got to be careful with the language here because I don't want to make it sound like we, they will have bodies identical to the bodies of resurrection bodies of the righteous. But they will give, let me put it this way, they will be given a suit to be able to survive endlessly. Um, it's a very sombering subject yeah. when you yeah. think of it. I mean, I can't yeah. grasp it. 
I can understand a little bit why John Stott said, you know, if you really think about it, your mind will crack. Um, it is it's baffling um, to think of endlessness. I had a uh, guy on my baseball team in college, and he was, um, I think, in the next room or on my floor in the dormitory. And he he just said, I can't even think about eternity. It it just it shakes me. It's it's just. I, I can't comprehend it. He, he just was... I had to give him credit for it. At least he thought about it. Uh, and he did. And uh, when, But you, when you think of the eternity of the loss, that's unfathomable. Um, no relief. One of the hymn writers says, "'Tis the worm that never dieth, gnawing at my bosom's core. Is there, is there no deliverance? Echo answers nevermore. Echo answers nevermore. Wow. Um, What's that? Huh? What's that? You want to know what that is? Yeah, do you know? Do you know? Can't wait. Uh, we have to look. Huh? It's Where is it? It's a, it's it's part of a song That's or a poem. Cool. That's deep. Uh, That's cool. Tis the worm that never dieth, mm. gnawing at my bosom's core. Is there is there no deliverance? Echo answers nevermore. Echo answers nevermore. Mm. Uh, I try to get more for that uh, for you on it. Mm. Anyway, any questions on this subject? We, we get about five minutes or so. What do you, what do you think about the Witch of Endor bringing up Samuel? How did how do you suppose Saul knew that was Samuel? Right? Because he disembodied at that point. Mm. Uh, oh. And actually, the spirit that's referred to there, the Hebrew that is an Elohim. So, you know, Elohim is used oftentimes for spiritual beings, not just God, right? So, yeah. an Elohim is a spiritual being of some kind. Uh, but it says when it brought up the spirit, that word there was in, yeah. in Elohim. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think God. I don't think there's any credit to the witch of Endor in doing what was done. Right. I think it was done beyond her capabilities, uh-huh. and that's why she shouted like out of horror, like, "Whoa! Yeah. This really did happen. This yeah. is really Samuel." Yeah. She knew that, like, like the Egyptian. Uh, uh, the Jannies and Jambres that said this is nothing but the finger of God. Mm. I think the witch was sort of saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. What this is all about is out of my league. Yeah. And then Samuel says, why have you disrupted me? Yeah. He was in a place of tranquility and serenity and his, his uh, agitation from being resurrected disturbed him. Mm. Maybe it was his voice. Maybe. Um, I'm wondering how they recognize. Well, he, he saw a form yeah. of some kind. But yeah. He spoke. So yeah, definitely. He spoke point. too, of course. Tomorrow, both you and your sons will be with me. Yeah. Yeah. With mm-hmm. me. I think that means in death. I don't know that all of his sons would have been in a place of quietude where he was. Certainly, Jonathan was one of the sons right. of Saul, mm-hmm. who we would assume would have been where. Uh, the well, right Sheol, is neither, Sheol is neither hell nor heaven, you know, so it's just the place of the dead in ancient right. evil thought. Who else had their hand up? Harrison. Mm. Yes. Yeah, of course, full blown Gnosticism didn't come out until a century after that, but it really has its roots, you could say, in the Greek philosophy of the dualism of man. So that the material part of man was really insignificant. It was the spiritual part of man that was to be the most emphasized. So they called that the numer, I believe, where this spiritual part of the person was, where the real emphasis was placed rather than the physical body. So the physical body, because you have the Stoics, they have the Epicureans, and they had different outlooks on life depending on how they looked at things. Some went in for all the gusto you can can. Others took a more... Uh, mod- modified view and so on but it all 
sort of has to do with the dualistic view. If you could say that we're dualistic too, we believe in body and soul, but their particular view of it was such that the body was was uh, not was viewed as being evil, evil. Whereas for the Christian perspective of the of the body, it's a creation of God. It's good. Though it's contaminated with sin, sin it's still a creation of God. Did you want to say something more about Gnosticism that you, that you may know? Yeah. Which verse? Fifth. About flesh and blood, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Flesh and bones, right. That's a good point. And Jesus' resurrection body is very important because the Bible says he's the first fruits mm-hmm. of them that sleep. So everybody has a flesh connection to Jesus. So he's the first fruit and all the rest will be resurrected like he is with a body. Now Jesus wasn't given another body. That's a whole other study. I'd love to talk about the, the resurrection body of Jesus because that was, that, that's been debated among theologians too. Um, they all would believe orthodox-wise that, that Jesus' body that he was raised in was the body that he died in. There's a numerical unity between the body that he died with and the body that he rose with. The question, though, is did Jesus' body gain extraordinary powers that he didn't possess in his incarnational period? Randy? You have to say yes because he Well, I'm of that inclination, too, because I think God gave him a glorified body, that there was something now in addition... To, I mean, he still is eating, he's still drinking, he's still physical, there's no doubt about it. It's the same body. But I think there was an extra unction, if I can put it that way, that was given him in now his resurrection body. And that's how I, we had described it, where uh, at the second coming of Christ, it says that he's going to ch- change our uh, bodies of humiliation into his own glorious body. Okay? You wouldn't describe Jesus' body on earth before his resurrection as a glorious body, but after his resurrection, yes, we do go, see him going in and out and, and with doors closed and uh, the way he escaped even the, the grave. Even though they walked into the tomb, the stone wasn't rolled away for Jesus to go out. The stone was rolled away so we could go in. Because we have the physical body. We would need, that would be a barrier. But for the Lord, that was no barrier for him. Anyway, that's, the, the, my main point is that there's a, a, a connection between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. And also, in, to Paul, when Paul speaks to the Athenians, he says that God has assured all men that they're going to have to give an account to God because he has raised his own son from the dead. That's God's receipt that he gives to us to say, here, this is for you to know 
you're going to be resurrected too. So resurrection is an important topic for the Greek people to understand because of their Gnostic tendencies, the Platonic view about emphasis on the soul and not the body, was Paul saying, hey, wait a minute. God created us with a body. That body has some value. That body that was sown in weakness, that was sown in dishonor, that was sown in natural, it's going to be sown in, it's going to be raised in power. It's going to be raised with glory. It's going to be raised imperishable, incorruptible. And it will all happen at the second coming of Christ. So what you will, if we, we will, I believe, recognize one another somehow. Brother Greg, don't worry about that. We'll know who you are. Uh, to, I mean, they knew who Peter was. I mean, Peter knew who uh, Elijah and Moses was. Uh, I'm not sure that you know they necessarily introduced themselves. Hello, I'm Moses. Hello, I'm Elijah. I don't know uh, how he would have well, actually we'll known. Because you, you'll be the guy commenting on the ladies' hairstyles. Yeah. So we'll know that. <laughs> See me later. See me later. All right. Who's going to close in prayer? Okay, Beverly. Thank you for the teaching of, of your word. And God, bless your blessing on our service upstairs, God. And uh, we thank you all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good, good message, Michael. Good teaching. It's good stuff, man.